Chapter 31 A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 31 The Romantic Period, 1782 to 1810. If there is any period of California history with respect to which one has a right to relegate matters of great import to a secondary place and to deal primarily with the affairs of the moment, that embraced by the years 1782 to 1810 may very well be selected. Before that time, the problems of making and conserving the Spanish establishments and of bare existence were too absorbing to permit of anything else outstripping them in the eyes of the inhabitants themselves or in the writings of posterity. After 1810, internal difficulties multiplied, and notable events took place which demand attention because of their effect on the ultimate destiny of the province, wherefore pleasant gossip takes its usual place in the background. Even in the years of the Romantic period, there were happenings of note. This was the time of the Nootka affair, when the long Spanish advance was stopped. This was the era of the awakening of foreign interest, when the English, Russians, and Americans had their earliest contacts with Alta California. And these were the years when, within the province, the questions of subsistence and of settled life were resolved. Yet all of these matters were either the tag-ins of what had gone before, or else the mere beginnings of greater affairs to come, and they may be treated more appropriately at the same time with events of earlier or later periods. By 1782, the last group of settlers who had come by the Anza route had established themselves in their new homes. In that year, too, the fiery but lovable Catalan Pedro Fagas arrived to begin his second term of office as governor of the province. In 1810 came the outbreak of the Spanish-American Wars of Independence, which brought about a cessation of the voyage of the San Blas boats. It is the function of this chapter to record some of the occurrences in the intervening years which seemed interesting at the time to the Spanish Californians themselves. Governor Fagas, some years before, had married Eulalia de Caiz, a Catalan lady of quality who was even more of a firebrand than was the good Don Pedro himself. When Fagas went to Alta California for the second time, Doña Eulalia and her son Pedro remained behind. Fagas very much wanted them to be with him, and wrote a number of letters which have a particularly modern sound in their demonstration of the meager reach of his marital authority. For example, he wrote to Captain José Antonio de Romeo in Sonora to use his influence to induce Doña Eulalia to come. Evidently, he despaired of his own powers of persuasion. Doña Eulalia at first refused, but both Neve and Romeo joined forces to assure her that Alta California was not wholly barbarous, wherefore she consented to join her husband there. As far as Loreto, she was escorted by Captain Joaquin Cañete. There, in May 1782, she was met by Fagas. Between July 1782 and January 1783, Doña Eulalia made the long journey to Monterey. The whole trip was something in the nature of a royal progress. 
for there was a succession of receptions in her honor given by the missionaries soldiers settlers and even the indians indeed her coming was a great event not only was she the wife of the governor but she was also the first lady of rank and social standings who had ever visited the province however dona eulalia may have enjoyed the attention showered upon her she was shocked by conditions as she found them in particular she was distressed by the number of naked indians that she saw thereupon she began impulsively to give away both her own clothes and those of don pedro until the latter pointed out to her that she could not replenish their wardrobe there were no shops in alta california that checked dona eulalia's reckless generosity though it is true that she continued to deserve a reputation for charity she managed to endure alta california until after the birth of her daughter on august third seventeen eighty four then she announced that she had had enough and straightway there was trouble unable to persuade don pedro to allow her to pack herself and her children off to new spain dona eulalia resorted to coercive measures against her legal lord and master she exiled him from her apartments and during three months made him keep his distance hardly so much as communicating with him finding that fagas did not respond to absent treatment dona eulalia became suspicious and at length convinced though without justifiable grounds that fagas was paying altogether too much attention to a servant girl whom he had picked up among the indians of the colorado thereupon she broke silence with fagas and accused him of infidelity in a torrent of words moreover she rushed into the street and told everybody vowing that she would get a divorce the friars tried to reconcile her and said that they found no grounds for a divorce she responded that she would go to the infierno hell before she would go again to fagas the friars ordered her to stay home in seclusion for a while and to do no more talking the above incident took place in february seventeen eighty five it came at a time when fagas was obliged by gubernatorial duty to make a trip to the south he therefore asked father noriega to take care of dona eulalia at mission san carlos during his absence father noriega consented and sent for dona eulalia but she refused to go locking herself and her babies in her room then the much-tried don pedro showed his temper he broke down the door and when his gentle helpmeet still refused to go to the mission threatened to tie her up and take her so dona eulalia went she made the friars pay for her humiliation during her stay at the mission they could not manage her at all she put on display some of her outbreaks in the church itself to the great scandal of all who witnessed them indeed the friars became so much out of patience with her that at one time they threatened to flog her and put her in chains they did not yield to the impulse however at length after a quarrel of about a year fagas and his wife were reconciled in september seventeen eighty five the governor had desired it all along for he was in fact devoted to dona eulalia the latter became satisfied that her charges against fagas were unfounded and consented to return to him from this time forth there is no further evidence of untoward incidents between them 
but it is likely under the circumstances that they occurred for dona eulalia did not give up her attempts to get away from alta california in the very next month after their reconciliation she wrote a petition to the audiencia of guadalajara asking for fagas's removal on the alleged ground of his ill health fagas did not know of the petition until after it had been sent he then made every effort to head it off and was successful the documents do not say what happened in the meantime at the gubernatorial residence dona eulalia seems finally to have won the fight early in seventeen ninety fagas himself asked to be relieved his petition was granted and jose antonio de romeo was appointed in his place in the fall of seventeen ninety as soon as the news reached monterey eulalia and her children took the san blas boat and left the province fagas had been told that he need not await the coming of the successor but he stayed on for another year until october or november seventeen ninety one he probably joined his family in mexico city and is supposed to have died in seventeen ninety six pedro fagas was a man of no inconsiderable ability and even intellectual capacity his reports merit more study than they have yet received not only are they full of information about the province but many are also well organized and well written he had many amiable and appealing qualities he was brave energetic and dashing and was also conscientious he was exceedingly fond of children they could count on him for sweets which he carried about with him in his pockets for their delectation he was indeed hot-tempered <laughs> who can blame him but his exhibitions of temper served only to bring out by contrast the essential generosity and kindliness of his nature furthermore he was devoted to alta california and not eager to get away as his predecessors had been this love for the province had one of its manifestations in the interest he took in his estate at monterey he had an orchard of some six hundred fruit trees besides shrubs and grapevines and was proud of it altogether californians should remember pedro fagas as one of the best governors of the spanish era much has already been said about alta california's problems concerning the food supply and domestic animals prices current in fagas time helped show that these difficulties had been pretty well solved counting the peso as equivalent to the dollar but remembering the very great difference between the value of money then and now some figures may be given for the purposes of illustration horses cost from three to nine dollars but saddles were more expensive twelve to sixteen dollars sheep brought seventy-five cents to two dollars mules were worth from fourteen to twenty dollars they served as beasts of burden which were always less numerous and more in demand than other animals and therefore more costly the price of meat may well make any modern housekeeper sigh one could get a dozen quail for twenty-five cents jerked beef was worth three cents a pound and fresh beef only a penny eggs however were high at twenty-four cents a dozen one of the most interesting as well as most important features of the closing years of the eighteenth century was the coming of foreign ships to alta california down to seventeen eighty six none but spanish vessels had visited the province but in that year 
a famous french voyager the already mentioned comte de la peru put in at monterey and made a beginnings of spanish california's communication with the outside world la peru had been sent out by the french government on a voyage of exploration and scientific discovery around the world but he was also to be on the lookout for lands which might eventually become french colonies he was instructed to find out the condition force and aim of the spanish settlements in the californias note at what degree of latitude the fur trade began and report on the facilities there might be for french establishments north of monterey leaving france in august seventeen eighty five la peru followed cook's route around south america to the hawaiian islands and the northwest coast which he touched on july fourth seventeen eighty six at fifty eight degrees thirty seven minutes proceeding down the coast he reached monterey on september fourteenth seventeen eighty six staying only until the twenty fourth he met with a most generous reception on the part of the governor fagas father president lasuen and others the spanish settlers at first refused to take pay for the supplies he procured from them at length they consented but would not take much there were entertainments to the limit of the province's capability one can well imagine that doña eulalia must have been at her best on these occasions la peru and his companions made good use of their ten days stay by getting an adequate idea of conditions in the province indeed their description has been characterized as one of the most remarkable ever made for its accuracy comprehensiveness and kindly fairness there was much in it of scientific character about geography climate resources and indians the military and political functions and the mission system were also covered they looked forward to a great future for alta california but felt that progress would be slow under spanish rule the fur trade was the only immediate economic prospect they said and gave their further opinion that it would be a century or perhaps two centuries before alta california would attract the attention of maritime powers they could not foresee the discovery of gold which was to hasten the development of the pacific coast leaving alta california la peru crossed over to china in seventeen eighty eight he was in new zealand this was the last that was ever heard of him undoubtedly his ship and all on board were lost in one of the many unrecorded disasters of maritime history fortunately for posterity he had just previously forwarded his journal to france in seventeen eighty eight the first american ships appeared on the coast of the californias though far north of the settled part in alta california these were the columbia and lady washington commanded respectively by captains james kendrick and robert gray the first american navigators to sail in the waters of the pacific their principal interest in the present account is the attitude of the spanish authorities toward them in may seventeen eighty nine acting on advices from new spain governor fagas wrote to jose dario arguello commander of the presidio of san francisco warning him that a boat called the columbia which is said to belong to general washington had entered the pacific with a companionship in order to make discoveries and inspect the existing russian settlements arguello was ordered to capture these vessels if they should come to san francisco this document is the earliest reference to the united states 
that has thus far been found in the annals of Alta California. From this time forward, mention of the United States was more frequent. As already stated, the term Boston usually served for the entire country on the opposite coast of the continent. For example, an Indian from Nootka who was baptized at Soledad in May 1793 was described as a son of an Indian killed by Captain Gray of the ship Lady Washington belonging to the Congress of Boston. As for Kendrick and Gray, they avoided the dire fate that may have been in store for them by failing to make port in Alta California. Gray is believed to have first reached coast off the northern part of what is now the state of California. This he did on August 2, 1788. Thence he proceeded northward to Nootka, where presently he was joined by Kendrick in the Columbia. In the next year, Gray transferred to the Columbia, took her to China, where he picked up a cargo of tea, and went on around the world, arriving in Boston in 1790, this being the first time that a ship flying the American flag had ever encircled the globe. It was not long afterward that an American did come to Alta California. He was a member of the famous Spanish voyage of discovery of the Descubierta and Atrevida under the command of Alejandro Malaspina. Malaspina had left Spain in 1789 with the object of making scientific explorations in various lands of the Pacific. After a considerable stay in South America, he struck for the northwest coast of the northern continent, which he reached above 60 degrees. Here his principal object was to decide, once and for all, whether the much-talked Strait of Anian in fact existed. He therefore made careful surveys of the coast all the way down to Monterey, which he reached on September 13, 1791. In his ship's company was a certain John Groham, Graham Groom, who was described as having come originally from Boston. He had shipped at Cadiz as a gunner. This man, the first American to reach Alta California, came there to stay. He was landed at Monterey and buried on the day of Malaspina's arrival. As for Malaspina, he departed from Alta California capital on the 25th of September. It was only a few weeks after this event that Romeo took over from Fagas the government of the province. Nothing of special interest occurred during Romeo's brief rule. The new governor was in poor health. In 1792 he died, and José Joaquín de Arriaga, at the time governor of Baja California, became acting governor of the northern province, a post which he held for two years. Arriaga, who was again to be governor in full proprietorship at a later time, from 1802 to 1814, deserves at least passing notice as a respectable figure in California history. He was a native of the Basque province of Guipuzcoa in Spain, but had served for many years in the New World. He was honest, of excellent character in private life, and a devout Christian. In that he knew how to obey orders to the letter and execute them, he was efficient. But there was nothing of initiative or originality about him. He was severely criticized by the English navigator George Vancouver, but rarely by others. In all, he was not a great governor, but was a worthy one. It was during the earlier administration of Arriaga that the three visits of Vancouver to Alta California were made. 
The Nootka controversy of 1789 to 1794 brought many vessels, mostly Spanish, to Alta California. Footnote. During these five years, the Spanish government maintained a post at Nootka, the farthest north that the Spanish settlements in the old Californias ever reached. In footnote. On November 14, 1792, Vancouver, who had come down the coast from Nootka, entered San Francisco Bay on his ship, the Discovery, the first vessel other than those of the Spaniards which had ever put in at that port. A few days later, a second English ship, the Cheatham, under William Broughton, entered the bay, ere Menengil Dosal was, for the moment, in command at San Francisco. He gave the visiting sailors a most cordial reception, and furnished them with supplies for which he would take no pay, though he did accept, on behalf of the Presidio admission, certain implements and ornaments, and a hogshead each of wine and rum. During Vancouver's stay of twelve days, there were many entertainments. On one occasion, too, the English commander was permitted to go down the peninsula to the mission at Santa Clara. Leaving San Francisco on November 26th, Vancouver entered the Bay of Monterey on the 27th. There he found another of his own fleet, the Daedalus, and various Spanish ships under Bodega. Jose Dario Arguello was temporarily in charge in the absence of Governor Arriaga, and he provided entertainment for his visitors on the greatest scale that Alta California had yet known. During the some fifty days of Vancouver's stay, there was a never-ending show of hospitality, both at the Presidio and at the Mission. As the English vessels prepared to depart, they were again furnished with supplies free of charge. Among other things, the Daedalus received a cargo of cattle which it took to Australia. These were to be the first animals of that type in the great island continent. On January 15, 1793, both the English ships and the Spanish sailed away. Arriaga had been in Baja California during the period of Vancouver's visit. When he heard of the cordial reception which had been extended to the English navigator and his companions, he was greatly displeased, especially because of the trip to Santa Clara which Sal had permitted Vancouver to make. The laws stipulated certain precautions against the entry of foreign ships and against their discovering the real weakness of the Spanish establishments. As a temporary governor, Arriaga wished to take as little positive action as possible and merely hold the province, as it were, for the official who would soon succeed him. The courtesies to Vancouver, he feared, might call down a reprimand upon himself. He therefore issued orders that they were not to be repeated in the future. Foreign vessels could be furnished with supplies, but that was all. In the spring of 1793, Vancouver returned from the Hawaiian Islands and spent several months exploring the coasts of New Albion, as with Britannic persistence he insisted on calling the Californias, with a view to perpetuating the name applied by Drake. At length, he turned south, and on October 19th, entered the San Francisco Bay, eagerly looking forward to more pleasures like those he had experienced the year before. His expectations were doomed to meet with a rude shock. He himself was treated courteously, but his men were not allowed to land, and he was asked about the object and length of his stay. 
Incensed at this treatment, Vancouver requested an explanation and was informed that it was done at Governor Arriaga's orders. After a stay of five days, Vancouver left San Francisco. On November 1st, he was at Monterey. This time, his stay did not drag on into weeks and months. It lasted just four days. The San Francisco reception was repeated, possibly with a little more strictness, since Arriaga himself was then at Monterey. In his anger at the Spanish governor, Vancouver has represented the situation as worse than it was. In fact, he was allowed to buy supplies on credit, land his men for exercise daytimes, though at a stipulated place, procure wooden water, and take astronomical observations. On November 10th, Vancouver reached Santa Barbara, where Felipe de Goicoecho was in command. The same sorts of restrictions were met with, but the Spanish official chose to interpret them more liberally. Indeed, Vancouver was received so much more cordially than he had expected that he remained there eight days and spoke of his stay at Santa Barbara in glowing terms. Going south, he stopped the day at Ventura and then sailed on to San Diego, which he reached on November 27th. Here again, Arriaga's regulations were applied in a generous spirit. After a visit of 12 days, Vancouver set sail on December 9th for the Hawaiian Islands. In 1794, coming from Nootka, Vancouver paid his third and last visit to Alta California. This time, he did not have to encounter the literal-minded Arriaga. Reaching Monterey on November 6th, he found his old friend Jose Dario Arguello in command. On the 9th or the 11th, Diego Borica, the new governor, arrived. Many courtesies were extended by these officers, and things were made so pleasant for Vancouver that he remained for nearly a month until December 2nd. Then, having taken on board a stock of provisions, he set sail for England by way of Cape Horn, exploring the coasts of South America as he went. In other days, these activities, as well as his earlier presence along the upper California's coast, would have been the signal for a series of Spanish voyages and conquests in avoidance of the English peril. That time had passed, however, and Vancouver's visits take their place merely in the group of interesting but unimportant incidents in the history of the province. Vancouver, like La Perouse, was much impressed by the natural advantages of Alta California, but criticized the Spaniards for their failure to make due use of their surroundings, marveling at the weakness of their establishments. Alta California's greatest need, he said, was the stimulus of commerce, so as to create new wants and new industries and give new value to lands and produce. With the exception of the Santa Barbara Indians, he characterized the natives as the most miserable race he had ever seen. For the friars, who had always received him well, he had nothing but words of enthusiastic praise. Other Spaniards, too, impressed him favorably as individuals, save only Arriaga, upon whom he fairly emptied the vials of his wrath. Diego Borica, who had taken over the government at the time of Vancouver's last visit, was one of the most attractive figures of Spanish days, and should rank next after Neve and Fagas among the best governors of that period. Like his immediate predecessor, he was a Basque, but from the province of Alava. 
after a long military career in new spain he had risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel at the time of his appointment to alta california later he received a colonelcy borica was a most jovial character his letters even in his official correspondence are teeming with wit and good humor he seems also to have been a convivial diner vancouver puget one of vancouver's officers oliva and fidalgo spanish naval officers were all good fellows he once declared but no better than he before a dozen of rhine wine port or madeira with characteristic optimism too he took delight in his surroundings which many of his predecessors had been far from appreciating to live much and without care he once wrote come to monterey Within a few weeks of his arrival, he penned the following glowing description. Quote, this is a great country, climate healthful between cold and temperate, good bread, excellent meat, tolerable fish, and bon humor, which is worth all the rest. Plenty to eat, but the most astounding is the general fecundity both of the rationals and irrationals. The climate is so good that all are getting to look like Englishmen footnote that is fairer in features than was usual in spanish america in footnote this is the most peaceful and quiet country in the world one lives better here than in the most cultured court of europe End quote. footnote from the translation in bancroft this is in fact made up of excerpts from several letters in footnote unfortunately no very thoroughgoing study has yet been made of borica's career the student who approaches it will most certainly find it replete with human interest during borica's term which lasted from seventeen ninety four to eighteen hundred a number of foreign ships visited the province after vancouver there came the english ship phoenix in seventeen ninety five commanded by thomas moore the phoenix stopped at santa barbara only in 1796, William Broughton, coming from Nootka in the Discovery, touched at Monterey. In that same year, the first United States vessel ever to anchor in Alta California ports put in an appearance. This was the naval vessel Otter of six guns and 26 men, commanded by Ebenezer Dorr. The Otter was at Monterey from October 29th to November 6th, where it took on a supply of wooden water. Dorr asked permission to put ashore some English sailors, a request that Borica was of course obliged to refuse. Dorr left them anyway, ten men and a woman, who were in fact convicts from Botany Bay. In the light of the courtesies which he had extended, Borica quite naturally regarded this act as dishonorable. He put the men to work, and later sent the whole group to New Spain. In 1799, Captain James Rowan and the Eliza stopped at San Francisco, and in 1800, Captain Charles Winship of the Betsy put in at San Diego. Both ships were American. A number of other foreign vessels passed up and down the coast, but did not make port. Meanwhile, the Spanish vessels from San Blas and Manila came in or went by as usual. Borica's administration was one of general progress rather than of outstanding events. All ranks of society received aid and encouragement. This was the era of Lasuen's greatest activity as father president, 
rendered possible by the harmonious and friendly relations between him and the governor. In this period, the social life of Monterey was in one of its most interesting stages. Not only did the governor contribute to make it so, but so also did his wife, a wealthy woman, and daughter, both of whom were popular. When his term expired, he sailed from San Diego for New Spain in January 1800. Going to Durango, he died there on July 19th of the same year. Pedro de Alberni, commander of the Catalan Company, succeeded to the governorship on the departure of Borica. Nothing of note seems to have happened during his brief rule. Alberni himself seems to have been a popular governor. He died at Monterey in 1802. Arriaga now came into power for the second time and remained in command until his death at Soledad Mission in 1814. Almost at the outset, on June 26, 1803, the old father president, Fermín Francisco de Lasuén, passed away. In the next year came the final separation of Alta and Baja California. Other events of Arriaga's term may in the main be treated elsewhere, with a mere mention here of their general character. From this time forward, great numbers of foreign vessels visited the province. Fur traders, whalers, seekers of hides and tallow, practically all of them engaged, to a greater or less extent, in contraband trade. Eventually, most of these ships came to be American, owing to the diversion effected by the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, which, fortunately for the Americas, called forth the entire efforts and resources of the great overseas colonizing powers. Spanish explorations beyond the coast range became more or less frequent to the accompaniment now and then of battles with the Indians. The Russians appeared along the Alta California coast and in 1812 founded settlements north of San Francisco Bay. Considerably farther north, the English were making slow progress across the continent in an advance which was not long afterward to bring the Hudson's Bay Company within the boundaries of Alta California itself. And in 1810 came the beginning of the already mentioned Spanish-American Wars of Independence. The activities of the Russians in Alta California are much more important as affecting the eventual American occupation than as concerns the purely local narrative of Spanish and Mexican days. Wherefore, it may more properly be left for treatment to the historian of American California. There is one incident, however, which belongs to Spain and contemporary romance. This is the story of the courtship of Rosanoff the Russian and Concepcion Arguello. Something has already been said about the advance of the Russians across Siberia and of their voyages to Alaskan waters, culminating in the founding of Sitka in 1799. In Alaska, they experienced in even greater degree than had the Spaniards in Alta California the difficulties attending settlement in a new and distant land. They found furs in abundance, but lacked food supplies and could not themselves produce them in the quality and amount required. This explains the Russian voyages to Alta California. That province was the nearest point from which they could obtain the food on which their very lives depended. Early in the century, the Russians in the frozen north began to hear tales of sunny California from English and American traders. In 1805, Nikolai Petrovich Rezanov, imperial inspector and plenipotentiary of the Russian-American Company, 
reached Sitka charged with the duty of investigating and improving the Russian colonies. He came to Sitka at a time of great distress and famine at that settlement, reminding one of the early days in Alta California. One of the two Russian supply ships had been wrecked, and the other for that year did not come. There was very little food on hand and no way to get more. People began to eat eagles, crows, devilfish, and almost anything that teeth could bite, and, as a result, scurvy and death made their appearance. To add to their misery, the colonists were in the midst of a season of cold rains. Luckily for them, the American ship Juno, under Captain Wolf, put in at Sitka. Rezanov bought both the ship and the entire cargo. The relief was substantial, but was only temporary. Rezanov therefore decided to take the Juno and go to Alta California in search of supplies. Accompanied by the surgeon and naturalist, Dr. Georg Heinrich von Langsdorff, Rezanov left Sitka on March 8, 1806. Nearly all of the crew had scurvy, and the voyage was a race with death. On April 5th, the Juno approached the entrance to San Francisco Bay. This was an anxious moment. Would the Spaniards try to stop them? But Rezanov was desperate and resolved to pass the fort at any risk. The story goes that the Spanish guard called out, What ship is that? Russian, answered Rezanov. Let go your anchor, came the orders from the shore. Yes, sir, yes, sir, Rezanov replied, but kept the ship going until it was well inside the harbor and out of range. There he was safe, for there was not so much as a rowboat within the bay. The entry into the Bay of San Francisco was against Spanish law, as Rezanov knew well. Naturally, therefore, he felt considerable apprehension over the success of his mission. He had to get supplies. But in the light of his disregard of the challenge from the fort, would the Spaniards furnish them? It would not do, either, to make known how weak were the Russian settlements. Spain and Russia were not at that time so friendly as they became after Napoleon's invasion of the Spanish Peninsula in 1808, and the existence of Russian Alaska might be endangered if the Spaniards knew what an easy prey it would be. Finding that no boats came out to the Juno, Rezanov at length sent Langsdorff and Lieutenant Davidoff ashore. They were met by Louis Arguello in temporary command at San Francisco, in the absence of Jose Dario, his father. With Arguello was Father Francisco Uria of the mission. It is said that Langsdorff and Uria carried on the conversation in Latin, since none of the four knew both Spanish and Russian. Footnote. This would seem to cast some doubt on the tale about Rezanov's manner of passing the fort when he entered the bay. In footnote. At any rate, the Russians were well received. It happened that orders had arrived telling of a Russian voyage of discovery around the world and calling upon the authorities in Alta California to treat the foreign navigators with courtesy if they should come to the province. Arguello had at first believed that the Juno might be one of the ships in question, so he entertained Rezanov and his officers at the Arguello home. There, Rezanov explained that the ships of which Arguello had been informed had returned to Russia. Wishing to make an impression, he announced that he himself was the ruler of the Russian possessions in North America, and said that he had come to Alta California to consult the governor about mutual interests. 
he was silent concerning his real object to procure supplies to keep the russians in the north from starving lest he might compromise his chances of getting a cargo he did not mention his urgent need and did not ask to buy provisions but he did make gifts to all who might help his cause not merely to win their favor but also to advertise the goods aboard the juno this policy met with initial success the friars of various missions offered to barter food for some of the effects he had if governor arriaga's consent could be obtained the news of rezanov's arrival having reached monterey the governor himself came up to San Francisco. Both Rezanov and Arriaga could talk French, so negotiations now proceeded more easily. There followed a battle of wits between the two men, in which the Spaniard must be admitted to have carried off the honors. He succeeded in drawing out of Rezanov that he wanted food supplies, but the Russian claimed that he desired them only as samples to see if they were adapted to Alaska, and also urged the advantages of a mutual trade. Stickler for the letter of the law that he was, Arriaga was about to refuse his consent to the proposed exchange, saying that he could not take a violation of the statutes on his conscience. It was at this moment that there intervened a powerful factor to save the day for Rezanov. This new element was none other than a comely young woman daughter of the commander of san francisco concepcion arguello the story is told by rezanov's companion langsdorff he draws a contrast between alaska with its starvation and other hardships and its hideous squaws and alta california where life ran the gamut of contentment in the abundance of things that were pleasurable and the happy indolence of the inhabitants here there was plenty to eat and drink tobacco to smoke, much riding by day, and unlimited sleep at all hours. Here were fair women, the joy of the dance, and the much indulged in gentle art of making love. Naturally, the mind of Rezanov was disposed to be impressed, and all the more so when he beheld Concepcion Arguello, the acknowledged beauty among the young women of the province. Rezanov was indeed captivated by the lovely Concepcion but there is a blot on the escutcheon of his famous romance. It was inextricably interwoven with Rezanov's game of diplomacy to get food. According to the English version of Langsdorff's account, quote, The bright eyes of Doña Concepcion had made a deep impression upon his heart, and he conceived that a nuptial union with the daughter of the commandant at San Francisco would be a vast step gained toward promoting the political objects he had so much at heart. He had therefore nearly come to a resolution to sacrifice himself by this marriage to the welfare, as he hoped, of the two countries of Spain and Russia. If Rezanov's love was somewhat self-contained, it would seem from this that it was, nevertheless, sincere. If he meant to use it to obtain his diplomatic ends, he also intended to carry on the courtship to its culmination in marriage. As for Concepcion, there was no doubt at all about her attitude. She was only sixteen, and she was not satisfied with the narrow bounds of her life in faraway Alta California. Rezanov made famous and rapid progress, both in love and, it would seem, in Spanish, spurred on by the delightful incentive of a bewitching young woman to talk to. Wily suitor that he was, he recounted the glories of the court at St. Petersburg, 
stories that lost nothing in the telling. It was not long before he realized that he had this particular phase of this campaign well under control. As he tells it, quote, I imperceptibly created in her an impatience to hear something serious from me on the subject, end quote. At the psychological moment, he became duly serious and was quickly accepted. Thereupon, he faced the next hurdle, that of the family and the friars, who interposed objections on the ground that the Rosanoff was of a different religious faith and that, in any event, he would carry Concepcion away from them to Russia. Eventually, the consent of the parents and the religious was accorded, provided that permission for the marriage might be obtained from the Pope. So much for the courtship in itself. Meanwhile, it had all along been serving Rosanov's more mundane purposes. Concepcion was in a position to know what her father and the governor were saying about his trading prospects, and she passed the information along to Rosanov. Once betrothed, Rosanov became virtual master in the Arguello home. From this time, he said, I managed this port as my interests required. Now, Rosanov had a valuable aid in his efforts to win the consent of Arriaga to the exchange of goods. Not only did he and the friars redouble their urgings, but also Concepcion and Jose Dario Arguello, her father, Arriaga's best friend, pleaded with the governor. Before such an attack, Arriaga's conscience yielded. He gave his permission for this once, but would not agree to any trading in future unless with the authorization of his superiors. The Juno was quickly laden, and with but little further delay, Rosanov set sail on May 21st for Alaska. The whole affair of the courtship of Rosanov and Concepcion Arguello occupied little more than six weeks, but the real beauty of the tale is in the aftermath, as so alluringly set forth in the famous poem of Bret Hart. Rosanov took his cargo to Alaska and afforded great relief to the hard-pressed colony. Some time afterward, he crossed over to Kamchatka. In September 1806, he left Okhotsk on the long journey across Siberia to European Russia. At Yakutsk, he was taken sick, but resumed travel before he had fully recovered. On March 1, 1807, at Krasnoyarsk, he died. Rosanov's constancy, therefore, was never tested. There is no evidence as to how he felt toward Concepcion after he had left Alta California. But as for the little Spanish Californian lady, she was faithfulness itself. For years she waited for her lover's return, or at least for some word from him, but none ever came. Suitors she might have had in plenty, but she wanted but the one. At length, she took the robes of a nun and devoted herself to a life of charity. When her father became governor of Baja California, she went there too for several years, probably from 1815 to 1819. For a while, she was back in Alta California and went then to Guadalajara. In 1829, now 38 years of age, she returned to Alta California and thereafter remained living for the most part with the de la Guerra family of Santa Barbara. Not until 1842, 36 years after Rosanoff's departure, did she at last get word of the way in which he died. Sir George Simpson of the Hudson's Bay Company is said to have informed her, 
Bret Hart tells the story in the following lines. Forty years on wall and bastion swept the hollow idle breeze since the Russian eagle fluttered from the California seas. Forty years on wall and bastion wrought its slow but sure decay, and St. George's cross was lifted in the port of Monterey. And the citadel was lighted, and the hall was gaily dressed, all to honor Sir George Simpson, famous traveler and guest. Far and near the people gathered to the costly banquet set, and exchanged congratulations with the English baronet. Till the formal speeches ended, and amidst the laugh and wine, someone spoke of Concha's lover, heedless of the warning sign. Quickly then, cried Sir George Simpson, speak no ill of him, I pray. He is dead. He died, poor fellow, forty years ago this day. Died while speeding home to Russia, falling from a fractious horse. Left a sweetheart, too, they tell me. Married, I suppose, of course. Live she yet? A death-like silence fell on banquet, guests, and hall. And a trembling fixture rising fixed the awestruck gaze of all. Two black eyes and darkened orbits gleamed beneath the nun's white hood. Black surge hid the wasted figure, bowed and stricken where it stood. Live she yet? Sir George repeated. All were hushed as Concha drew, closer yet her nun's attire. Signor, she died too. In 1857, at the convent of St. Catherine Benicia, Concepcion Arguello died. Her life had been famous not only for its romance, but also for its kindliness and charities, so that she was venerated by all. Thus passed away the most cherished figure in the romance of Alta California history. End of chapter 31